and say there's one human being, well, I know there's more than that because I've actually talked to him, but one that I highlighted, there's one human being that is on this earth that is still living and still breathing and, I mean, doing amazing things, going to school, on a, has a drum scholarship um, and, and has overcome serious trauma and challenges and is on earth because of what I went through. And he didn't commit suicide um, and he was to. So he's going to take his own life had I not connected with him um, and being able to relate with him with his symptoms and what he's going through. So the, 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 the pain was poor me, this sucks, it's terrible, I, I hate this. The teacher, the lesson is you just never know. You never know why you are going through it. But if you quit, you're no help to anybody. Um, and if you just give up, it doesn't do any good. Hey, this is Adam Greenberg. I'm the CEO and founder of the health and wellness company, Lurong Living. I'm a former Major League Baseball player with the Cubs and Marlins. And I am also the author of the book, Get Up, The Art of Perseverance. You're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast with Kevin Salm. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Thanks for tuning in to the Heads and Tails podcast. Today I'm excited to bring you Adam Greenberg, who is uh, famous for one pitch that changed his life forever, and that was a 92-mile-an-hour fastball to the back of the head uh, in his Major League debut with the Chicago Cubs. And that gave Adam the record of being only one of two players in history to have an official at-bat without ever taking the field. And after seven years of continued hustle to get back to the major leagues, battling post-concussion symptoms and countless other injuries, he signed a one-day contract with the Miami Marlins in 2012 to finish that at-bat. Adam was an All-American at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and was inducted into the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in 2014. And outside of baseball, uh, Adam founded the health and wellness company Lurong Living and is uh, author of the book Get Up, The Art of Perseverance. And before we get into it, uh, Adam, I really just want to commend you on that book. And, you know, I am not a great reader, so the fact that it, you know, was easy for me to read and to get through, and I finished it in pretty much like a day. Uh, But it was just an intriguing, and I just kept wanting to hear more about your story. And just when I thought, like, things were going to turn around, like you had another setback that you had to overcome, it was like, it was awesome. And anyone who's listening to this going through an injury or concussions um, or really any kind of adversity in their life, like, you need to get a a handle on this. And uh, there's just so much wisdom jam-packed in there. So, Adam, thanks for coming on the show, man. Well, Kevin, I appreciate all the kind words, and uh, I'm certainly glad you enjoyed the book, and it's uh, commendable with what you're doing with um, kind of giving back uh, with what you went through and, and putting this podcast out. So I'm, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you. Thanks, man. Uh, so can you start off by kind of taking us through your journey to the major leagues and the wild pitch that uh, struck you in, in the head? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's definitely – Part of my story is 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 the drive and passion to get there uh, to the major leagues. And when I when I tell people about baseball, I say it's the dumbest sport you could possibly choose to play um, for many reasons. Number one, it's a game that's built around failure. So failure is uh, you have to be okay with it because you 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 bat 300. That means you fail 70 out of 70 percent of the time. Um, so odds are not in your favor where you're going to go home feeling great about yourself (laughs) every day. Um, but for me, it's, it's kind of like what life is. Life is uh, a constant challenge and it's never going to be perfect and you're always going to have obstacles. So it's, it's just an awesome sport. Um, but then the additional thing is the odds go even further against you because there's about 8 million kids that trying to play internationally every single year for one of 750 spots. So that, that's the odds, again, continue just to get even even more challenging. Um, but the one thing that I had in my mind and my heart was I was going to be a Major League Baseball player. And there wasn't anything that was going to stand in my way. I was going to do whatever I could to actually get there, make it, and stay there. Um, and, and that's kind of the part of the journey. And, and when I speak about goals and 
and setting them, it's really not about just having the goal. It's really feeling it, believing it, and doing whatever whatever it takes to actually make that happen. Um, so I went to Guilford High School in Connecticut, small town. No one's ever played Major League Baseball or, for that matter, even been drafted professionally. Um, so it, I had a great four years at Guilford High, played uh, baseball, basketball, and soccer all three, all four years. Um, and then uh, went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, on a uh, baseball scholarship and had a, uh, a, a great three years. Um, one, my freshman year was incredible. I uh, went down as basically a nobody and was the ACC Rookie of the Year and set a whole bunch of cool records. Uh, came back my sophomore year and had a weight room accident. So I was on the top of the world. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, baseball was, was stripped from my life. Um, so that was the first true time in my life that I faced a, a, an injury that took away my passion, uh, or my ability to, uh, to follow through with a passion of playing sports. So, um, it, it was, it was a really, really trying time, but it was the best thing for me because I got to experience firsthand what I needed to do to, to move forward once it was going to happen again because it was it, it's inevitable you play sports you're going to have setbacks um so my junior year i came back and um and just kind of put all that behind me and and worked my worked my butt off and got an opportunity in uh in june was drafted by the chicago cubs in the ninth round and uh that was when i decided that it was time to start my professional career so i left after my junior year signed my contract and um, and reported to Lansing, Michigan for the Lansing Lug Nuts and making $850 a month, $20 a day on the road for meal money and lived in a, a host family's basement with no air conditioning in the middle of uh, Michigan hot summer. Um, but for me, it was perfect. It was everything that I wanted just to just to be able to play the game that I loved and uh, and be a professional. Um, so that was, uh, that was the kind of start of the, the professional journey. It was not easy. It was not, uh, it seemed like it was short because I was only in the minor leagues for about three and a half years, um, before I got my major league call up. But, um, it was a whole bunch of challenges, a whole bunch of obstacles, a whole bunch of attitude, uh, attitude, I wouldn't say adjustments. There was one major attitude adjustment that I needed to have when I wasn't playing every day. Um, and, and had to kind of look myself in the mirror and realize that I picked baseball, baseball didn't pick me. So we always, we always complain about what hand we're dealt, but sometimes it's, we, uh, we, we got to look ourselves in the mirror and, and kind of be able to be okay with when things are bad or when things are struggling and know that your attitude really controls so much, um, to give you the opportunity to persevere, the opportunity to keep going, to create the opportunity when it when it does present itself finally and, and you're able to push through. So July of 2005, I got my major league call up and um, overcame all those one in 750 out of 8 million odds and no one in my hometown had ever done it. And uh, and here I was, the, the dream had officially come true and I was going to be a major league baseball player for uh, the Chicago Cubs. So that was uh, that was a, a fast version of the of the story of, of what happened to get there. And then uh, ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, nationally televised game, playing the Marlins. Um, I got to pinch hit in the ninth inning. And it was about three to four-tenths of one second uh, by the time the, a baseball pitcher throwing 90 miles an hour um, releases the ball by the time it, it hits the catcher's mitt. And in that, in that time frame, I had the ability, once the ball was released out of the pitcher's hand, to say, Better stay in in there. Don't bail out because if it's a curveball, I'll look stupid on my first pitch, bailing out, having to be strike one. Um, tenth number two, it was, uh-oh, that's not a curveball. That's coming at me. And tenth three was just get the heck out of the way. Do whatever you can. Um, unfortunately, I turned towards the catcher and uh, and and exposed the underside of, of the helmet uh, and the 92 mile an hour fastball caught me up under the helmet square on my head, um, and, uh, and, and set my life in a little bit of a tailspin. My eyes rolled in the back of my head and I had to say two words, three times, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. So that's, that's what happened. Yeah. And it's crazy. Like there's so many nuances to your story and each 
nuance has like its own lesson it seems and uh just to kind of before we kind of go in through the aftermath of what happened after your injury uh i wanted to talk about some of the stuff that you had mentioned before and the first thing was failure and how baseball is like a breeding ground for failure and if you're not okay with it which i as a baseball player growing up was not and i couldn't (laughs) mentally handle striking out or grounding out and i would let it affect the rest of my game and i think it's interesting to hear i'm I'm curious were you always like a kid that was able to just kind of like you know, rush it off and move on to the next at bat or the next or just go out into the field like that? Or was that like a learned trait that you kind of matured with over time? Well, I think I I, I had the competitive fire in me, as we all do as athletes. Um, I had some really good, obviously great parents and good coaching um, that really focused on the task at hand because that's the only thing that you could control. So I think in some regard, it's a learned trait. I mean, without a doubt, just you think about coaching or teaching kids like kids are sponges so you have certain attributes but then there's other things that you have to be taught Um, and when you're going through the game of baseball you have to like like we just said be okay with the failing I was never okay with it so I want to be clear it wasn't just brush it off no big deal it was (laughs) I'm upset but figure out the solution okay and that's I think the difference of Like, I'm not saying I never uh, slammed a bat, threw a helmet, got got pissed off or didn't. I was was an emotional player, Um, but there was the time to let that energy out, and then it was refocus on the task at hand or figure out why I struggled or why I popped up or why I struck out or what happened um, without pointing the finger always. It was, it was somebody else's fault and really figure out how to kind of overcome it. And I think that's just, those pieces are, are skills that you continue to mature and you continue to grow on. Um, but once again, the, 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 the skill of being able to separate the moment like what you what just happened into what's the next play or your next job because once you have an at bat for instance with baseball the great part is once the at bat's over you do have time at which you can kind of reset your focus um while you're running out to go play defense while the pitcher's warming up to throw his warm-up pitches you have that time to like decompress and then it's okay now it's time versus some other sports right with basketball or soccer or hockey where it's constant ebb and flow you can you, you can shank a, a an open net um but then you right back on defense like immediately so i don't know it, it, it each sport has its own uniqueness about it but baseball because it's so much emphasis on each at bat and you only get four of them or three sometimes in a game sometimes you're lucky to get five like it's intense so so it's uh it, it's it's an interesting sport yeah, you got a lot, a lot more time to think about those things in between at bats. Yep, which um, can be good. At, it could could be good or bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Depending on where you let your mind go. But yeah, I was someone who, you know, would dwell so much on messing up as opposed to, you know, like you said, controlling what you can control, and that's your next at bat and how you're going to approach that next at bat or whatever in the field. Um, but the next thing I wanted to point out to people because I feel like. I feel like people who watch baseball and didn't play baseball don't understand how hard the game is and how difficult (laughs) it is to play at a school like UNC Chapel Hill and to make it to the major leagues or even the minor leagues. Like you have to be so freaking good. And you were talking about like how against the odds it really is for everyone playing the game. So I just want to point that out and, you know, so people realize like how good at baseball you are. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing is kind of like the minor league struggles. And I kind of think it goes back to that failure thing again. And I recently interviewed uh, another um, retired baseball player uh, who didn't make it to the majors, but he spent some time in triple A. And he was saying like, you would have a great season, like an all-star season. And the next season comes around, like you don't play anymore. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why. So uh, I was curious if you experienced the same thing and if, you know, your ability to deal with failure helped push you past that point as opposed to where he said it kind of mentally changed his confidence and he wasn't as good of a player once he kind of – that happened to him. 
Yeah, it's it's a great point because every single person, every athlete has their own story. Mine just so happened to be a nationally televised game, and it was a unique unique thing that happened. Um, so it, it's it's crazy what happens in a locker room. You'll listen to every single person; they all have an amazing, fascinating story. Um, and that's just one example of when things are great, it's easy to play. When people like you, it's awesome. When people all of a sudden just fall out of favor for whatever the heck reason, they don't have to have one. But at some level, there is one, right? At the end of the day, it's not just, ah, we don't like you anymore. It's there's somebody that we like more, right? It's always that It's always that way. It's not just, we don't like you. It's there's something or someone that, that we like more that, can, that we feel can do better. Uh, I'll give you one example when I was with the Royals. I had one of my best spring trainings uh, at that point, and I was supposed to be in AAA. Uh, they they signed me to a AAA deal, and towards the end of spring training, they were like, it doesn't look like you're going to be able to be in AAA to start the season. There's too many guys that um, look like they're going to get trickled down from the big league, so are you okay with starting AA? My answer was, of course. I mean, but I want to be in AAA. I'm however old I was. And I, I feel like I'm ready for that opportunity, but you know, I'll give it 110% wherever I go, but I'd prefer to be in AAA. It's crazy how a conversation can be manipulated and turned into something different. So it was turned into basically I, I'm too good for, for AA. I'm, I need to be in AAA. And at the end of spring training, the last day of spring training, I was told that I was getting released not because I wasn't good enough, but they decided to go in a different direction with a guy who had never really succeeded at, at the higher levels, but he was super fast, like ridiculously fast. Um, and they wanted to see where that talent could get them. So by no fault of really my own or my performance on the field, they chose to go in a different direction. I didn't agree with at all, but th what it did for me was fuel my fire even more it was it, it burned deeper because it's like i'm going to prove you wrong so i kind of talk about this i there's three principles that i live my life by in this regard one prove myself right right that that's what you have to do 100 percent of the time people may say that's selfish i say it's smart i say it's intelligent because you live your own life and if you're not happy with what you're doing and the work that you're putting in what the hell are you doing it for but number two is followed by Make the people around you proud, the people that support you, the people that love you and care for you and want what's best for you, make them proud. But the third one is the one that's the, that deep burning like fire, Those the, the people that say you can't, the people that say you should quit, the people that don't believe in you anymore, the people that are uh, opposed to you. That's when, it go, when it's getting tough in those dark times. It's, it's harder just to be optimistic and positive and like, oh, great, everything's wonderful. No, sometimes it's like, you don't like me, that's okay. I'm going to prove you wrong. That was always my mentality. So every time I got knocked down and I really needed something, I would pull on the close people to me to help me get myself up. But then I would also kind of remember those conversations. I would remember the people that said, you can't, you should stop, or you're not good enough for us right now. And, and that would fire me up. Right, that was your fuel that you used. Cool. Uh, so, I guess going back to the injury and getting hit by by the curveball, I think everyone who's played baseball at a, at least the high school level has been embarrassed by a curveball at one point or in, in time. I know I definitely was uh, a few times. Uh, so I can't blame you for wanting to making sure that you're, that you're sitting on that that curve if if it if it came. Um, but after getting hit, like what were your initial thoughts? And I kind of want to get into what symptoms you were experiencing because a lot of people struggling with post-concussion syndrome come to this uh, podcast to seek advice and help and other you know remedies that maybe they haven't tried yet. Gotcha. All right. Well, for, first of all, just to clarify, it was a fastball that hit me. The, the, my, ment my mental approach was you have to recognize like the first 30 feet that the ball's in the air, you're, you're not really able to, to recognize exactly what it is. It's the second 30 feet that you're able, or no, 15 feet, I'm sorry. So it's the first 15 feet, you really can't see what it is. The second 15 feet, that's when you pick up the spin for real, the rotation, you, you're, you're knowing what it is. Um, but at that, at that velocity, 
I was you, you make sure that you, you're taught stay in. It was a lefty, lefty pitcher and I'm a lefty batter. So stay in there means wait until you actually recognize it before you're you're bailing out. Um, and, and that's where by the time that I was able to recognize, oh, my God, that's not a breaking ball. It is a fastball coming directly at my head. That's when that's when I it was it was too late to get out of the way. The trajectory of the ball just it was perfect. Um, but in terms of what happened, what followed suit after it, it started off with 17 doctors misdiagnosing me. Uh, it was it was kind of interesting because looking back and understanding really what I was going through. Obviously, I had post-concussion. I had a concussion, so that's one one thing that they got right. Um, but they were saying anything from a stress uh, fracture in my skull um, to just post-concussion, and I just needed time to recover. Um, what ultimately was the case was I had positional vertigo, where anytime I would look up with my head or look down or roll over in bed or move really fast, my eyes would actually shift uncontrollably side to side. And I would get really dizzy. Um, there were times that I blacked out, I fell over. It was um, it was scary because I was less concerned for the first time in my life of baseball and more concerned of the quality of my life. And would I have to live with this and endure that for the rest of my life? And it was really just, it was scary because <clears throat> Here I was a kid, I was 24 years old, and I was the major league baseball player, and now I was concerned of, uh, of the quality of the rest of my life. So um, what ended up happening was after I was finally diagnosed with the positional vertigo, I was introduced to a maneuver called the Epley Maneuver, and it's basically you have three canals in your inner ear, and when uh, you have these crystals that are in the base of your ear, that's what they call them. And when a crystal gets dislodged, it can go into one of those three canals. And once that happens, that puts you into a state of vertigo. And because of the trauma that I was in, that I endured, there were many crystals that just exploded and ruptured. So I was very prone to continuously having one of those crystals go into those canals. So what the Epley maneuver does is it actually goes into a, a bunch of head positioning movements laying off over the a bed or a table and putting yourself into vertigo and then rolling over on your side same thing getting yourself into vertigo and really what you're doing is you're realigning those crystals down the canal back to where they belong um and it was something that i had to do <clears throat> eight ten times a day um and and during practices or during games going into the clubhouse and, and doing it um and it was just it was very overwhelming, um, to say the least, at, at times, because uh, not being able to focus so much on the game itself and more just get myself where, where, where I could keep, keep on my two feet without falling over. <clears throat> so those were things that I was kind of going through. And uh, additionally, there was the, un, the undiagnosed thing that was – it took a solid year and a half, uh, and that was when I went to spring training with the Kansas City Royals. I was pulled in from one of my practices from uh, the, the team. Guy pulls me into the clubhouse and he says, hey, I want you to go in. There's a vision training doctor that wants to put you through some, some visual training tests. And <clears throat> think nothing of it, put on a pair of 3D glasses and doing these exercises. The first exercise that I did was taking a, a triangle <clears throat> and moving it into a rectangle. Um, pretty basic stuff. Uh, pretty much anyone can do it with a little remote control. Um, so I did that exercise and I did a bunch of others where following the arrow, putting it up, down, left, or right, following it across the screen, um, memorizing three, three lines or three numbers, and then six numbers or six lines up and down, left or right. Um, and, and I couldn't make it past the, the three. I mean, when it got to six, it was just too, too overwhelming for me at the time. Um, and, and anyway, so I finished the exercises, finished this online training. Uh, and when I took the glasses off, it was the most excited I've probably ever been um, with finding out bad news. The bad news was the triangle that was supposed to be in the rectangle was actually 13 steps away from the rectangle. It wasn't even close. Um, and 
you guys are probably wondering why I was excited. I was excited because my whole life I was a pretty good hitter. And the year that I got hit or the year after I got hit, I, I batted, I think, 209 combined for the, for the entire season. And I was a career 300 hitter everywhere I'd ever played. So there was a huge discrepancy and I didn't stop working. I didn't work less. Um, I, I hit probably twice as much as I ever hit, hit in my life, um, but I just couldn't quite figure it out. So this was the first sign, a visual Im indicator of one of the reasons why I was probably struggling. I couldn't see. <laughs> my eyes weren't working together. Um, there's a thing called convergence and divergence, and your eyes are actually bringing something to a contact point. And obviously, taking that rectangle, putting the rectangle, they weren't working together. So um, it was really exciting because now I had something that I could train and improve. So I actually did training with Dr. Barry Seiler with the Visual Edge Performance Trainer. Um, he he single-handedly with his program changed and saved my career um, and potentially my life in a lot of regards because my short-term memory improved, my uh, my visual skills certainly improved, but it was it was much deeper than that. Um, the emotional side of things and just being able to be more engaging and, and, and just getting my life back. So there was a lot. I mean, it, it was uh, it was two and a half years of constant struggle. Yeah, I mean, I'm just impressed that you were able to hit 209 with that visual discrepancy. I feel like that's still not I mean, that wasn't good for you, but it was still an impressive uh Impressive thing. So, of all the treatments that you went through, are you saying that the Visual Edge Performance Trainer is probably what helped you the most get back? Um, I'd say it was certainly a large part of that. Um, when you're talking visual skills, if you don't, if you can't see, you can't hit. So, right, that that's a massive part of what I went through. Um, so yeah, I, I, I give so much credit to Barry Seiler, Dr. Barry Seiler, and Visual Edge Performance Trainer. Additionally, um, Dr. Michael Leibowitz, who was a kinesiologist, still is, and a chiropractor, who I started working with when I was uh, just drafted my first spring training with the Cubs in 2003, he introduced me to how the body worked. He introduced me to nutrition and whole food nutrition and supplementation. And it was the combination of what he was doing as well that kind of put my whole life together. Um, because nutritionally, I had too much inflammation in my body. I wasn't functioning optimally. My my even even my my thoughts um, were not as clear just because the more inflammatory foods and and high omega sixes, your your, your mental capacity starts to subside. So um, tendons and ligaments were a little weak. My my body just wasn't the same. So um, really building me back up nutritionally. Um, was also a huge, huge component in my recovery. So I would say the two doctors that had the most impact during, um, from the time that I got hit until the time that I made it back to the big leagues in 2012, um, certainly were the visual training, uh, Dr. Barry Seiler, and then on the, uh, on the physical, uh, nutritional component with, uh, Dr. Michael Leibowitz. Yeah, those are great uh options for people who are currently still struggling with post-concussion uh symptoms so i'm glad that those worked for you and maybe they'll work for the list some of the listeners out yeah, there. yeah and and i'll say that uh um, the epley maneuver i apologize that's neither of the docs but um if you have any questions or uh, you can go online and check out the epley maneuver just put in positional vertigo and you'll find those exercises as well all right cool i'll try to link those up so i know you know you said you you struggle with these symptoms for you know, years, I think you said two mm -hmm. years, but you didn't, you never really stopped playing baseball. So how did you, how are you able to play through those symptoms? I know you were also playing at a time where, you know, people didn't really talk about concussions um, the way that they do now. So you might have not even been able to play, you know, well, with the, with those symptoms today. And, and it's a, uh, it's a sad truth. So on one hand, um, my men mentality was I have to play. I have to get out there. No questions asked because I will be passed by. Um, and it's what have you done for me lately? And if you're not on the field, it's insight in mind, out of sight, out of mind. That's my whole mentality. That's how it's always been. Um, but there was no uh, 
there was no emphasis on concussions. There was no, not even close to what it is today. Um, so it was, it's, it's a sad truth that had I got hurt now versus then, I would have probably accrued at least a year, if not two, of major league service time. And I would have been able to even potentially be playing um, as a big league rehab because every time my symptoms would come back, it would I would just be a, a major league rehab guy, um, which means only pension, pay, um, and you're you're closer to arbitration, and you're actually you have to be in their minds. Um, and sometimes when you have service days, other teams look at that as oh well he's he's a big leaguer. It's crazy how how the whole game used to work and and still does. Um, but had I been injured, I would have been. It, the, the protocol would have been totally different. I would not have been allowed to play. That's just a fact. Yeah, I came back 21 days after I got injured. There's not a chance that anyone would let me take the field. Um, so for those reasons, it, it it's kind of tough to look back and say what if, but the facts are there's no such thing as what if it didn't, right? So that was the thing that I've had to grapple with and, and, and get a grip of a long time ago. Um, what if... When that when I faced the guy who hit me five years later in independent ball and I got to sit my first at bat against him, what if I got the base hit in the big leagues that night? It didn't happen. So you know you just sometimes in life when you go through stuff, challenges, struggles, injuries, especially with with this type of podcast, you can say why me, or you can say this is an opportunity for something and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to find my way. I'm going to find a clear path to, uh, to victory. I mean, uh, an injury is like a, it's like a game in a, in a crazy weird kind of sick way, but, um, you have to attack it like that. You have to approach it where you don't win the game in the first inning. You can, you can give it a good chance, but the game doesn't end. So, when you go have ups, downs, and battles, just make sure the little things that you're doing every day put you one step closer to victory, um, and that's beating the injury, whatever whatever injury is. So, um, you know, it's it it it's it's different. It's tough to look at sometimes, but at the same time, it's stories like mine, and and I'm sure stories like yours that have forcedly changed the way that. Uh, the medical community and teams look at head injuries and they don't downplay them anymore. Um, and, uh, and and you're safer keeping somebody out a lot longer than shorter. That's that's a fact. So we all know it. So uh, for what it's worth, if what I went through was to help other people, um, I'm okay with it. Yeah, and you just gave us some great examples on what they can do to, to overcome that. So um, thanks for that. And I know that you had a a ton of other injuries. Like when I was reading your book, I was like, this guy just cannot catch a break. <laughs> so can you take us through some of the other injuries you had um, throughout your career? You had mentioned the hand injury at, at UNC and that was pretty serious, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Two of my fingers were, my right hand were basically dangling um, off. I, I basically chopped them off in a weight room accident, caught them between two dumbbells. Um, so that was my first major, major injury. Uh, the next one was when I signed professionally, uh, it was my second year. I think I slid over a bat at home plate and, and cr- I mean, just totally crushed my leg, um, developed a huge hematoma, uh, with, I ended up having it drained like every single day, I ended up with a bag of fluid in my leg. I had surgery. Then I ended up with a near death experience of, uh, of, uh, a, a really bad infection, um, that just wiped me out. Uh, and then I popped my wrist doing in another weight room accident, just my wrist, uh, cartilage TFCC tear of my left wrist, uh, totally ruptured during the off season. So I had to overcome that. Um, then of course the, uh, the head injury, and then I was getting my way back on my way to a big league, uh, trajectory hitting 330, uh, halfway through the season. And I hit a triple and ruptured a Baker system, my right leg. Um, free injury, free thing. And then, um, then the next last major, major injury was, um, 
the uh, I, I tore my rotator cuff diving for a ball in the outfield after I was just released by the Reds, who said you'll be in the leagues with us this year. Um, so I ended up with a 90% rotator tear and a labral tear. So those were just kind of uh, most of the major traumatic injuries that I uh, that I went through. Um, and each one was was unique, but each one the 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 more that I had, it, it, it was easier and easier mentally to deal with it. And I think that's the most important part is keeping my mind. Didn't matter what the time frame of recovery was. It was mentally where was I? And that was better and better after each setback. How did you stay so like self-aware during those times to maybe know when you were kind of getting off track with your mentality during those injuries? Uh, well... So it's easy to sound like uh, cupcakes and rainbows, right? Where everything's perfect. Um, it, it wasn't always that way, which is once again why I wrote the book, which is why when you read it, you can understand the depth of sometimes some of the challenges and, and the needs that I did have. But the one thing that I always maintained, and this is when I, when I talk about when I was injured, when I hit in the back of the head, and... I did everything in my power to make it to the big leagues. They asked me a few questions. How many fingers was, were they holding up? They had me follow their finger. But the last question they asked was the one that kind of solidifies and exemplifies where my answer is going. They said, where were you two days ago? My answer was I was in the minor leagues and I'm not going back. So you ask, what was it that kept me going or kept me mentally strong? It was the desire to get to make it and stay and play Major League Baseball. So no matter what else was going on, as dark as it may have gotten, I had that overarching goal that I was not, I was going to get. Um, and I think what's important for everyone to understand is goal setting is so much more important than just, I have a goal. It's something that allows you to, get up out of bed. It gets you to be excited and motivated. And I'm using Major League Baseball as a huge goal, right? That's that's really important. But it's the little things that were also keeping me going because you can't get to the Major Leagues tomorrow like we, like we talked about. Um, so the little goals and the setting of little goals was critically important. Like I need to do my Epley maneuvers. I need to train. I have to get my, my mental state improved. I I want to be able to see better. I like those are those are things where it's it's those those things that allowed me to keep going. But once again, having that big goal was the thing that never allowed me to get too too far down. That yeah, that kept you going. That was like the driving force behind yep. it all. All right. Um so, you know, how was – I feel like you were always playing injured, and playing injured is something that I talk about a lot on the podcast and not necessarily, like, in a good way because I feel like a, a large reason why I got hurt as severely as I did was because I was playing hurt uh, half the time. So how hard was it for you to constantly have to play at less than 100% uh, and you're still playing at a high level? Yeah, I mean <laughs> – it was um, it, it it was a challenge, but I it was really the I don't know it, that's a tough one because for so long in my life and career I was not injured like I never missed a game and I missed I think it was one game in college it was one day and it was a doubleheader and out of all the games that we ever played every summer ball team. I ever played on all three high school sports, all four years, never, uh, never missed one game. So it's really hard for me to kind of take my mind to, well, I always played injured because I, I look at my career and I was like, no, I didn't. It was the latter part of my career that as we're talking more specifically, it was, it was a, it was a different, difficult thing because I, uh, I wasn't accustomed to it. And then once it started happening, it was like I just couldn't catch a break. And then when I would get 100% healthy, something else would happen. So I, I was able to play a significant time frame of, of being really healthy. Um, but I guess looking back at it, 
the most challenging time of my life, definitely towards the latter part of my career when I was playing independent ball and I had my rotator tear. So even more so than with the head injury, the rotator tear was the most challenging for me because I was, I never actually got 100% healthy uh, for like three years. So I played injured for three seasons. And that ultimately is where my my career kind of passed me by, which may sound crazy, but it, it was three years of just never really being healthy, never having the the time to to re, rebuild myself and get myself there until 2012 when I said, I'm done. I'm taking a year off and I'm getting myself physically and mentally back to where I need to be. Um, and of course, the year that I took halfway half of the year off is the year that I got called back up to the big leagues. So go figure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good segue into that that part of your story. Um, so can you kind of tell us about that, the one at bat campaign that, that, that well, not that that got you there because you were obviously training at that level to begin with, but gave you that opportunity. Yeah, so uh, got a phone call from a, a lunatic, Matt Liston, who was wanted to start a campaign to make – get me back to the major leagues, as you mentioned. And I said, absolutely not. Um, in my, my mind, I was like, no, this isn't happening. Then I thought about it. And what I thought about was listen to another guy on the other end of the line with oozing passion saying, what happened to you was wrong. I'm going to do whatever I can to help get you back to the big leagues. And what it immediately made a connection to was passion drive and determination and overcoming all the odds to accomplish a feat, who was I to tell the guy no? Because I'd be a hypocrite. So what I made sure we made a deal on, I said, you can do whatever you need to do to draw attention to me as a baseball player. I'm not a mocker. This isn't a poor me campaign. This is get attention, get me to spring training and give me an opportunity to showcase my skills as a baseball player. Because what the heck's the difference of an agent? Like that's what an agent's job is supposed to be. Bring attention to the player. Let the player do their job. Let the player get themselves an opportunity. But you're the you're the content to allow that to happen. So I said, "What the hell do I have to lose?" Uh, my agent was basically non-existent at that point. So let's go. Um, Matt worked his butt off, talked to a ton of people, got some buzz going, created that campaign, went viral, and uh, and I told him, "Though I." I I needed just to get an opportunity to bring training. Halfway through the season, I got a phone call from Brad Austin, the, uh, the, who was managing the Team Israel for the World Baseball Classic qualifier. And he invited me down to come try out. And it was at that point that I went down to my hitting coach in Florida for three days and reinvented myself as a major league baseball player. It's crazy as me down, but for three years after my surgery, I was, I was a lost soul in the batter's box. I mean... My numbers were nowhere near they were I was accustomed to. I was hitting 250 like year in and year out. My on-base percentage was always high, close to 400. Um, lead, you know, lead the team or league in runs and certain things that were really important and still are in, in the game. But I just wasn't the same hitter. And when I went down to Florida with this guy in three days, I, as I said, just reinvented myself and, and remembered how to hit and it was great um so i went to team israel had a really great two weeks uh of uh, of scrimmages and games and and uh and at that time that campaign what it did it brought enough attention from the marlins to have their scouts go and watch everything that i did so when when they called me at the end of the last game after we lost and we weren't going to uh, the baseball classic in the spring, I thought my career was over. And that's when I got that phone call of uh, they offered me the one day contract to at bat in the big leagues. So um, it, it it wasn't a yes in some regard. What is it? What is a yes? I'm not stupid enough to say they didn't do a good thing for me. But at the same time, I deserved it. I earned it because of my performance on the field. It wasn't I earned it because I made it there once. It was because they saw me as a Major League Baseball player, and that that's what mattered to me. So it, was, it wasn't even difficult for me to accept it, um, knowing that I was a Major League Baseball player and I was prepared 
next opportunity. So that's what happened. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible story, and I know there's like a ESPN story that kind of goes along with it. So I'll, I'll link that all up in the show notes for people to to watch. But um, I'm glad that you were able to get that opportunity again. Hey. Um, going back to kind of the injury stuff uh, in your book, there's a powerful section that I, I read um, where you talked about how pain can serve as uh, a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so how did how did that you know kind of come up in, in your book and why was that important to put in there? Well, I mean, I think we've touched on it a, a little bit so far when, um, when you go through challenges and obstacles and experience some pain, um, it teaches you valuable lessons and the valuable lessons are just never giving up. And, and you never know what's going to happen when you, when you finally break through. And I, I use I use the example because it's it's in the book with with two kids, and one is it's not one is more traumatic than the next. But when I went through what I did, I had no idea that it was going to have an impact on another human being. Right? That's not why you're that's not why you're facing adversity. Going, oh, this is great because I'm going to be able to help somebody someday. Um, you're 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 self focused on just improving yourself, getting better, getting over, getting through whatever it is. Um, so, but the pain was ultimately taught the most valuable lesson and the valuable lesson was something I needed to share with everyone because everyone, as, as you mentioned, a, a majority of your listeners are people that go through and have experienced pain or still are. Um, so I can speak and say there's one human being. Well, I know there's more than that because I've actually talked to him, but the one that I highlighted there's one human being that is on this earth that is still living and still breathing and, I mean, doing amazing things, going to school, on a, has a drum scholarship um, and, and has overcome serious trauma and challenges and is on earth because of what I went through. And he didn't commit suicide um, and he was too. So he's going to take his own life had I not connected with him um, and being able to relate with him with his symptoms and what he's going through. So the, 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 the pain was, poor me, this sucks, it's terrible, I, I hate this. The teacher, the lesson is you just never know. You never know why you are going through it. But if you quit, you're no help to anybody. Um, and if you just give up, it doesn't do any good. So uh, that's that's the one. And then the other one was there was a kid that had an impalement, a metal rod through his, through his brain. I mean, crazy as it may sound, it was just like he was in big trouble. And he was in the hospital bed watching my story on the Today Show. And, uh, and it was all the motivation that he needed to overcome what he was going about to face. And he set his goal as he was going to, get a, a college basketball scholarship. And I, I mean, he was young at the time, eighth, eighth grade or whatever it was. And uh, years later, I'm at a speaking event and kid comes up to me and introduces himself and tells me his story and tells me that he's about to be a freshman and he's got a college basketball scholarship. And it was what I went through in that, in that story that allowed him to believe that he could do it and he would. So, I, I just thought it was, it was so important not to say, oh, good for you, good for, good for me, way to go. And that's not the point. The, the point is to use everything that I went through to help other people understand that there's, it, there's a lot greater opportunity than just what you're going through on a day-to-day struggle and, and overcoming that. You never know, you never know who you're going to affect in a positive way. Right. And uh, that's cool to see that you know, your story kind of came full circle for someone else. That's, that's awesome. Um, so how did you get closure on your baseball career? I mean, you played, you know, for such a big part of your life and the transition to life after sports is something we talk about a lot. So how did you get closure and what has your transition to life after sports been like? So it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it was easy because until I made it back to the major leagues, I was never going to stop. And I say never, I don't know what the timeline would have been. It just was not, there was no timeline. Um, so once I made it back to the big league, I went to spring training the following year with the Orioles. And I was determined to prove to myself that I could play at that level still. 
And I went there and I hit 355 with a 413 on base percentage during the entire spring and knew that I was a major leaguer. And when I got released the last day of spring, because of the numbers of how many big league outfielders they had brought on and all played well, so I'm not saying anything of the sort other than they earned their spot, they were their guys, and and I didn't have a spot. Um, I went to independent ball again back to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I played for about a week, mentally charged, driven, ready to go. And one day I woke up and said, I don't want to go to the field. I'm not even joking. It was as simple as that. I lost that that burning desire. I had lost that motivator because I knew what was what was ahead of me. I knew the challenges that were in front of me being in a ball, being so far removed from an organization or or a team and being one of their guys that I kind of just said I don't want I, I I just said I don't want this. And I uh I had a nutrition company, Lou Wrong Living, like you mentioned, and it was it was doing well and changing people's lives on a day-to-day basis, helping people live an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, um, help people with, with joint pain and arthritis and tendonitis and just live a healthier quality of life, um, a preventative lifestyle. Um, and it was a passion. It started to really become a passion of mine, and I was enjoying doing it and seeing the results that were happening um, with with so many people. So I I went to the field. I did go to the field that day, and I played for about uh, I don't know, five or six days that way, where my heart wasn't there, and I saw my average just tumble, like plummet, and 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 just the the whole aura of, of wanting to keep going was there. So um, somebody had it in their mind that I was finally done because it was, uh, it was uh, a game down in Maryland. I was going back for a fly ball. It was probably two o'clock in the morning. It was, I think it was an extra inning game or whatever it was. And the wind is howling. There's rain coming down and uh, I, I'm going back and the ball takes off on the other way. So I, basically my body and I put my hand up and the ball came down and hit me on my, my right index finger and, and shattered my finger, exploded, like cut it open. It was, it was kind of creepy. I didn't really talk about that injury, but, um, but when it happened, it was like this, as terrible as this may sound, a huge relief. It was like, I'm good. Like I'm now I'm done. Thank you. You just let me know it, it's official. Um, and I never stepped foot on the field again. That was my last, that was my last uh, time on the field. Wow. And yeah, you didn't write about that in your book and it's crazy that it was another injury that kind of like (laughs) gave you that, that closure. Um, it's funny because when I think back to my own issues and the lessons that I've learned, uh, from being injured and, you know, I just didn't know when to listen to that that voice or that sign that's like, Kevin, like you need to just give this, this up. Like there's something else out there for you. Um, but we had similar experiences with that. So I, another thing uh, with Lou, Lou wrong living, you had mentioned in the, the book about your experience with velvet deer antler. And I was curious about like what that is. And is it similar to that deer deer antler spray that some of the guys were like getting in trouble with, um, uh, I appreciate it, and it's a it's a great question. Um, deer antler is it's an amazing superfood. Uh, that's the that's the best easiest way that I can describe it. Um, I'll tell you my story first because it's kind of it, it's it's how the whole thing started. I dove for a ball in uh, right after I got released by the the Reds in spring training in 2009, <clears throat> and I was playing independent ball, and I snapped my rotator cuff 90 percent. Um, the doctor uh, that I had alluded to earlier in our conversations, Dr. Michael Leibowitz, who I was working with nutritionally, um, he had introduced me to this deer antler, and it's just ground down deer antler at a specific stage of growth, and it's um, it was supposed to help with musculoskeletal issues and some inflama- inflammatory issues, and so I started taking it, um, and no no sooner than two days after I had a 90% rotator tear, I was playing um, and I was only able to DH for the next two days. But then four days after my injury, I played pretty much the rest of the season 
um, and stole more bases than I ever did in my career. My body was getting looser quicker. I was recovering faster. I was less achy. I was less sore. Mind you, my shoulder still didn't feel great because it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty hurt. Um, but the facts were I was able to play. When the season ended, I stopped taking the antler and I couldn't lift my arm past 90 degrees. I couldn't sleep. I was waking up in the middle of the night. So out of an experiment, I tried to grab a bat and just take a swing in my driveway. And I got halfway through a swing, not even the whole swing, and I dropped the bat in excruciating pain. So not saying it was a it was a cure-all by any means because it didn't heal my tear, but it took away enough inflammation and allowed me to play the rest of the season um, with such a, a such a serious injury. Um, that on the third day is when I got my MRI results. Um, after the season ended, I got my MRI and the, the results came in a few days later. And that's when the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Patrick Kwok, just called me up and he said, how on earth did you play? You don't even have a rotator cuff. And at the time, I just had given him this bottle with a, a deer antler on it. And he was just kind of shrugged it off and just was like, okay, sure. Um, but he did his own research. And, and deer antler as a as a whole food has been used for 2,000 years um, in, in Chinese medicine and, and daily use. So for us, um, it's just we haven't ever really heard about it or used it here in the States. So um, he did his research and find, found out that it couldn't hurt me. So he was like, good luck. Go ahead. Take it. It's, 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 go for it. So he, he performed surgery, put seven anchors in my shoulder, repaired my labrum. So I had anchors in my rotator cuff and a, a slap labral repair that he did and basically told me I would miss the next season. I'd be out about 10 months. Um well, I increased the dose of the antler during the off season, during my recovery. And five months to the date of surgery, I played opening night of the 2010 season. And I played over 100 games that season. Um, <clears throat> so my personal results were pretty awesome. I had started giving it to my teammates, my friends, my family, my dog who had an arthritic hip and a limp. And the results were just very consistent. I mean, people were coming back with their back didn't didn't hurt. Their knees felt amazing. Their shoulders from pitching was recovering faster than they ever had. Um, chronic tendonitis in my father. He had wrist tendonitis for three years. That went away. My dog's limp started going away. It was just really cool. Um, still, my focus was playing the game. So I was just more excited about that than, than the deer antler, to be quite honest. Um, but then my surgeon came up to me during one of my, one of my practice or during, during one of the games. And he actually said, his patients were excited to take this because they were getting off of cer certain pain medications. And at that point, I kind of realized there's more of an obligation here. And that was to like build a brand and get this product out there and change more lives. <clears throat> so getting into the kind of where this ended up, what ended up happening is I started Lurong Living in 2010 and it was with one product. We had the, the antler of a deer ground down and encapsulated. It was certified drug-free by the Banned Substances Control Group, and it, it, it was amazing. Um, and then I think about 2012 is when deer antler spray kind of hit the market. And if a lot of people have heard extract, deer antler spray, drops, sublingual drops, I, there's a huge difference. Uh, number one, I'm really proud that at least right now, our Lurung Living Essential is the only deer antler product in the world that's certified drug-free. So that's number one. The What is was getting a bad rap, if you will, was the antler sprays, the extracts. What they were doing, they were extracting the IGF-1 molecule, which is insulin-like growth factor. And they extract that molecule. Um, and, and when it's in food, like it is in a piece of steak, it's in milk, it's in uh, certain vegetable proteins, that's, that's the IGF-1. It's in our food source that we eat. It goes down the digestive tract and it breaks down into a protein. Now, if I'm getting too scientific for people, I apologize. So really simply put, it's a whole food and there's nothing wrong with it. When you extract that, that hormone and you concentrate it, you make it into a spray, which you kind of alluded to in the, in, the, in the beginning of this conversation. The spray gets into your bloodstream. So it's basically taking a pure hormone and getting it directly into your bloodstream, avoiding the natural digestive tract. So... When when the questions are, well, is, is yours legal? Is it okay? Absolutely, 100%. It's certified drug-free. It's a whole food, um, and, and it's completely good, clean, and healthy. 
Um, the extracts and the sprays and the drops, the sublingual drops, I'm not saying if they're good for you. I'm not saying if they work. I'm not saying that they're legal or illegal. Um, I'm just simply saying that ours is clean and certified drug-free and does amazing things because in the antler itself, it has everything that makes up somebody's joints, somebody's cartilage, their bones, um, and it has anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. So it's really, it's, it's just really an amazing product. Um, I swear by it. I've used it now for 10 years. I built an entire brand and company around it. Um, and Lurong is Chinese for deer antler. So it's, uh, so you, you can imagine like that's the name of my company, Lurong Living. So that is, that, that's where we got our start. Um, but I'm just really proud of the brand itself because now we've kind of grown into, we do national um, nutrition challenges. We teach people how to live a proactive versus reactive lifestyle. We have a dairy-free pro, uh, protein. We have a hydration branch chain. We have fish oil. We have a focus product. So we, we, we have a whole rounded line and it's just really exciting to know that it all started because of genuinely wanting to help people with one product and it's turned into uh, the opportunity to, to change thousands of lives. Yeah, it definitely seems like like it has, and I think it's cool how it it almost speeds up the healing process just because of I'm sure inflammation kind of detracts from healing in a lot of ways, so it kind of helps create a good environment for healing in your body, um, from what it sounds like. And there's also a gym. Uh, one of our one of my buddies owns CrossFit yeah. Bison, and I know that they participate in your, uh, yeah. your nutrition yep. challenges. So yeah, I yeah. thought that's pretty cool. A few more questions before we wrap the interview up. Um, I know that I read in your book that you were interested in sports and classical music as a kid growing mm -hmm. up. And I always think a lot about, um, or I guess preach a lot about how it's important to kind of have a hobby or an interest outside of your sport just because you never know when that, that time will come where the sport's not there mm -hmm. anymore. So can you just tell me a little bit about where that interest in classical music came from and like what interest you had outside of baseball uh, throughout your career? Uh, yeah, the classical music came because it put me at peace. I could, I'm a guy who, for whatever reason, I used to get irritated with my older sister who would know every word of every song that came on the radio. It irritate me to no end because I didn't understand. I couldn't hear words. I didn't pick out like what they're actually saying. So it would bother me. I gave up on music. I'm being honest. Like that was it. And classical music just put me at peace. And I was like, yeah, this is peaceful. And this is nice. And it put me in a nice, calm, <laughs> calm zone. Um, so it, it's, it's nothing more than that. I didn't have any real crazy desires. I played the piano when I was young. Um, but I had no kind of desires to further anything like that, except I just it just really kind of mellows me out. Um, but in terms of like passions and desires, like I'm, I'm losing passion. So uh, as, as I mentioned, I kind of, I, I started Lou Wrong Living um, and that's the website, lourongliving.com, L-U-R-O-N-G living.com. Um, started that and it just loved to help people and change their life. I also got involved in a, uh, uh, a startup baseball agency um, for the purpose of providing everything that I didn't get. And just not just me, but so many other people in the game. And that's support when things are going, when things are challenging and the support to actually help get you there far beyond just here's some, here's a, a steak dinner for, for all intents and purposes. So uh, everything that I do is like, is, is giving back to the things that I either had really good or the things that need to be fixed. So I really like to help and, and help fix things. Um, so I, I think it's really, really important to kind of understand your passions. I, I spoke about it in the book a lot of just goal setting. And when you're, when you have a goal, um, it, it helps you kind of find more passions. Um, so yeah, I, I an easy one because I'm, I can be passionate about gardening as I, I, as I got passionate about that, um, I raise chickens now. Um, I mean, any, anything I do, it's, it's, I'm kind of like an all-in guy. Um, but I think it's the transition after war. It's, it's really important if you're, if you're obsessed with the game of what of which you play, be involved with it. Find something that you you loved about it that you want to give back. Um, because why walk away from something that you're so passionate about? That's why I got involved in the agency. I also put up a batting cage at my house so I could teach people 
hitting. And then I go to local high schools and teach base running and outfield drills and outfield work um, because how could I play for so long, keep all that information inside of me and not give it back? Not being I'm right with everything that I say by any means, but at least give the information to other people. That's that's a passion for me. So. Yeah, and in your book, a great section uh, that I, I encourage listeners to, number one, buy the book. Uh, it'll be available in the online bookstore on headsandtails.org uh, and also on Amazon. Um, but there's a section that you identify your passions is like you call it have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you give good examples, and I encourage listeners to go buy the book and, and look up that section if you're struggling with trying to find what your passion is outside of um, your sport. Um, and before we, uh, I just thought when you were telling me about your baseball agency involvement, what's the name of that agency? Uh, just so I could link it yeah, up. Four Diamonds Sports. And um, yeah, this is this, this is like the inaugural year. Uh, this will be our first half and our first off season. So um, all the all the content will be coming on the websites. We, uh, we've just been formulating, as I said, something that is, this is what we're all about. And, and providing more value than anyone has ever seen. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's going to be pretty cool. Where can people connect with you on social media? Um, so Adam Greenberg 10, I believe, is the Instagram. And then uh, Facebook is uh, just Adam Greenberg. Um, and I believe it's uh, Twitter. You might have to post that. I'm so bad with the names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll have them all linked yeah. up in the sh- in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, po- so. post post uh, them up. Honestly, um, I'm my life is now kind of providing as a resource to people. So any issues, any questions, concerns, comments, or whatever, I, I welcome them. Um, and uh, and and if what I went through can help one more person, then as I as I say, it's it's all worth it. All right, thanks a lot, Adam. And my my last question that I ask all my guests is uh, what's your definition of toughness today? And maybe how has that changed throughout your career and where you are now? Definition of toughness is, it's, it, I mean, for me, it's kind of easy. It's, uh, it, it's called toughness equals perseverance or perseverance equals toughness um, because that's what determines what's inside. Um, it's mental toughness, it's physical toughness, it's emotional toughness, um, it, it's being able to overcome those challenges and those obstacles and that's to me it's that it's perseverance so toughness is perseverance perseverance is toughness cool they're inter- interchangeable i like that um so adam thank you so much for sharing your story and putting yourself out there and writing the book and as such a great resource for you know all the listeners on the podcast but really anyone not an athlete or not like anyone could learn you know some valuable insight from reading this book and um, I, I really appreciate you coming Kevin, on. Kevin, thank you so much. And as I mentioned in the beginning, what you went through is uh, there's a purpose for it. So if it's part of it is the podcast to, uh, to help give back, it's, it's admirable and commendable. And I appreciate it.